Hi, everybody. This is Peter Schiff. We got a lot to discuss on this week's podcast. We've got more propaganda on deflation, inflation. We got the head of the IMF talking about the deflation ogre that's going to destroy us. We've got other strategists saying that the Fed prefers inflation because at least they know how to fight it. We've got money printing in Venezuela and Venezuela being held up as an example of how to create inflation. We've got Bloomberg warning Janet Yellen not to go down the route of Sweden. We've also got some news on Obamacare premiums going up, but nobody is going to know how high until after the election. How convenient. We've got Mark Cuban talking about his idea to limit student loans. A Wells Fargo employee not only demanding a $10,000 raise for himself, but that for all 200,000 of his co-workers making that demand public. We've also got a British minister under fire for suggesting that the intellectually disabled who want to work be allowed to do so for less than the minimum wage. But I think the big story of the week is everybody now talking about QE4. It's not just me. You've got other people contemplating the possibility. I think it's a certainty as the markets continue to weaken and the economic news and the corporate news. Bad earnings out of Walmart, IBM. The, red, the bad news keeps on flowing. At some point, the Fed is going to cave in and come back with more QE. And, of course, Janet Yellen, ironically speaking this week about wealth inequality and why it's a problem without even appreciating her role in creating the very inequality that she thinks is such a problem. So sit back. we got two hours here on The Peter Schiff Show. Make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts now. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money, your stories, your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it was a full court press this week with the inflation propaganda. You had even the head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, in a speech, came out and said, if inflation is the genie, then deflation is the ogre that must be fought decisively. An ogre. I mean, an ogre sounds a lot worse than a genie, right? So she's saying, if you think inflation is bad, wait till you get a load of deflation because it's way worse, right? She's the head of the monetary fund, and she believes that money needs to lose value. If money gains value, that's bad, right? If real wages are rising, if savings are more valuable, uh, if a penny saved is, is, is really a penny earned, right? That's a bad thing. What's good in the eyes of the head of the IMF is that money loses value, that every year it becomes less and less valuable and the things that you want become more and more expensive, right? That, that, is, that is what she believes Maybe she thinks if it's really high, it's bad, right? But if it's the right amount of inflation, it's good. But any deflation, I, I, I you know, I like that. Like, you know, they say it's okay if we have inflation of one or two percent, 
But why is deflation of 2%? I mean, we're not talking about 10% deflation. So they're basically saying a little inflation is good, but any deflation, even one-tenth of 1%, even that is so awful. It's an ogre that we have to fight it decisively. And in fact, we did get some awful news out of some countries. Sweden, CPI, down. Actually, Sweden has had a decline in the CPI is now down 0.4 tenths of 1%, 0.4, right? So prices, according to their, their measures of consumer prices, the Swedes that are going to the stores are paying 0.1% less for things than they paid a year ago. So something that was a dollar cost them $99.60. Or not, you know, not, obviously, they're not paying dollars, but you know what they mean. They're paying in kroner. But if that was happening in America, they went to the store last year and something was a dollar uh, or $100, and now it's $99.60. Oh, my God. In fact, I mean, if I went to the store and something that was a dollar last year, if I wanted to buy it and I got to the store and I saw it was only $99.60, first of all, what's the odds that you're even going to remember what the price was a year ago to even notice that it's four-tenths of 1% cheaper? But what they think is someone's going to go to the store to buy something that they want, and they're going to notice that it's $99.60 when last year it was a dollar, and they're going to say, you know what? I came to the store to buy this, but I noticed it's 40 cents cheaper it's not $100, it's $99.60. I'm just going to go home and I'm going to come back next year because next year it could be another 40 cents cheaper. It might be $99.20. Why? I'm not I'm not a fool. I mean, I'm not the schmuck who's going to buy this knowing if I wait another year, I can get it for four-tenths of a percent cheaper. This is what these guys actually believe. Of course, this isn't happening. But what happened? As a result of this horrible news coming out of Sweden, the Swedish kroner got pounded. I mean, it was down like 2%. I mean, think about this, the, the, the irrationality of something like this. Because the news came out that the Swedish kroner gained purchasing power over the course of a year, that people who had Swedish kroners in Sweden could buy more stuff than they could a year ago. That was bad news for the currency. The currency got clobbered because it reported that it's retaining its value. I mean, why would you do that? Normally, you would think that would be a good thing for a currency. Hey, there's no inflation. I can have confidence in this currency. It's holding its value. It's a store of value. Yeah, I want that currency. That's what normally would happen. But what's happening, the reason it got hammered is because currency traders now look at this news that prices are down in Sweden and expect the Swedish central bank to panic, to look at this data and say, oh my God, we're in danger of falling into a deflationary vortex. We better print a bunch of money. We better lower interest rates. We better do QE. We have to make sure that we don't get eaten by this deflationary ogre, even though there's nothing wrong with the Swedish economy. But somehow, the fact that prices have declined needs to be interpreted by the central bank as, oh my God, this is very dangerous. We need to do something. We need to make sure we have inflation because everybody knows that deflation is so bad, even though it's not bad at all. I mean, it shows you how this propaganda effort is working so well. The same thing happened in the, in the UK. The UK came out with its lowest inflation number in five years, right? 
uh, the annualized rate was 1.2%. That's the lowest since the September of 2009. That's still positive inflation, 1.2%. The pound got crushed that day. Crushed. It was the biggest down day that day, right? Pound got clobbered because inflation was low. I mean, what kind of bizarro, crazy world is this that you get punished, your currency gets punished if you have low inflation and it it goes up in value if we have high inflation? It's all because of this ridiculous perception uh, about the dangers, the non-existent danger of falling prices. And even though prices aren't falling, they're still rising. People are panicking that they're not rising fast enough because it's too close to the danger zone. But finally, I read a decent article that actually puts its finger on the truth. And this is an article that was in the Daily Telegraph, or the Telegraph, and written by Ambrose Evans Pitchard, who does write a lot of good stuff, right? He's their international business editor. And the title of this article is Dam Breaks in Europe as Deflation Fears Wash Over ECB Rhetoric. And yes, there are all these fears. And listen to some of these quotes in this article. He's quoting this guy uh, from RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, one of their strategists there, Mr. Roberts. Deflation is already knocking on the door. We think it could happen as soon as next month, given the latest fall in food prices. So food prices going down, this is what's got this guy scared? Food prices? So like people are going to stop eating if the price of food goes down? They're going to wait next, they're going to wait a year to eat because they think the prices will be one-tenth of one percent lower? There is no way you're going to eat when you're hungry. It doesn't matter. You're not going to not buy food because you think it could be cheaper. Yet here this guy is saying, I'm worried because the food price is going down. Why isn't the food price going down good? What about all the hungry people, starving people? Aren't we always talking about, oh, starvation and poverty? Well, doesn't a fall in the food price alleviate poverty? I mean, if you're poor, what's the best thing that can happen to you? The price of food goes down. I mean, the poor people probably spend a higher percentage of their money on food than anybody. Yet this guy is worried. Hey, the food prices might go down. The central banks have to act. You got to stop this threat. You got to make sure that the price of food goes up. Why? You know, I said everybody is talking about why lower gas prices are going to help the American economy, even though the lower gas prices aren't permanent. They're going to be fleeting. But people recognize that lower gas prices are good. Well, why aren't lower food prices good? Why aren't lower? Why isn't the price of everything going down good? Here's some more for this article. Listen to this guy. Um, We are reaching the end game in Europe. If they don't launch real QE and start reflation by the end of the year or sooner, the consequences are too awful to contemplate. Too awful to contemplate. But here is where we finally get a kernel of truth. From Ruben Segura Callea. I guess I don't pronounce his name. He's from Bank of America. Here's what he says. Low inflation has become, quote, the single biggest threat to the dynamics of public debt in the Eurozone. Single biggest threat. Low inflation, not even deflation. Low inflation is the single biggest threat to public debt. And that's it. 
in a nutshell, right? Strip out all this propaganda. That's what it really boils down to. Governments need inflation to wipe out their debts. That's it. In addition to propping up asset prices, right? They need inflation to uh, default on their debts without actually defaulting. And if the article goes in to talk about all the debt to GDP ratios and how they're going into uncharted territory and governments have to lift nominal GDP to bring debt to GDP down. So governments need inflation, not economies. It's governments. You don't need inflation to grow your economy, but you need inflation to grow your government and to save politicians from having to admit that they can't keep their promises. You see, the problem with all these debts is that politicians, in order to win the votes of the voters, right? politicians have promised more than taxpayers can deliver. And we have all these debts, and there's no way to pay the money back. But the politicians don't want to admit that, and they don't want to raise taxes on the middle class to say, you know what, we have all this debt, we promised all this government spending, and you know what, there's no such thing as a free lunch, so we got to raise taxes so that we have enough money to pay off our bills. They don't want to say that. But they, don't, they can't pay the bills, so they want to create inflation. But I've always said that the public has to pay for government spending. The public has to pay for deficits one way or another. And either you pay for it with higher taxes or you pay for it with higher prices, inflation. That's it. Governments have two ways that they can finance their spending, right? They can tax the public, which means they physically take your money away from you and spend it, right? The government reaches into your pocket and, and picks it, right? They go to your paycheck and they take a percentage of it and they spend the money instead of you. The other way the government can get money is just have a central bank print it up, right? The government can write a bond and the central bank buys it and prints money. And now the government can spend that money. It didn't have to tax you. It didn't have to take money away from its citizens. It just got it for free from the central bank. But that doesn't mean it doesn't impact the citizens. Because what happens when the government does that is that prices are higher. Prices go up or they don't go down, right? So let's say prices would have fallen by 10%, but because the central banks print all this money, prices stay the same. That means that people are robbed. They're denied of uh, a 10% reduction in their prices, which would mean that they would have 10% more purchasing power. <clears throat> so either way, the government takes your purchasing power. When they tax you, they physically take your money and you can see it, right? And you know exactly why you're poor because the government took your money. You see it come right out of your pay, right? Or they can increase sales taxes and you go and buy something and there's a tax on it and they can say, oh, you just raised my sales tax. You're diminishing my purchasing power. But if they don't take any of your money, instead they just print money and spend that, what they're doing is taking your purchasing power because prices are rising and the net effect on the individual is the same. He buys fewer things. His cost of living goes up. His purchasing power is diminished. The effect is the same. If government increases taxes by 10%, right? So I have 10% less money or they don't increase taxes. They print money and spend it and prices go up 10%. And now my paycheck 
is 10% less valuable because I could buy 10% fewer things, I, I arrive at the same destination, right? I, I've had my purchasing power reduced by 10%. And that is really what, what is going on here. Politicians don't want to admit that. I mean, why don't they just do a default on their debt? Why don't they just say, hey, we borrowed a dollar. We're only going to pay back 90 cents, right? They could do that. And now they, they've reduced their debt to GDP. They can restructure. They don't want to admit that. So they want to inflate. They want to reduce the value of the debt. They want to screw over the creditors, but they want to do it through inflation rather than devaluation or rather than default or restructuring. But the only reason to do that is because one is secret and the other is out in the open. And these cowards in government don't want to come clean about what's going on. So they don't want to default. They don't want to raise taxes. So they want to create inflation. And so it's really about a bailout for politicians. That's why. I mean, why is it a threat to public debt? Because it's, it's a threat to the politicians because they would have to admit that we can't pay the debt. They would have to actually default honestly instead of doing it through inflation. So this is actually what it's all about. But the government can't come out and say we want inflation because we want to wipe out our debts. We can't afford to pay. So they have to concoct this asinine theory about how deflation is actually a threat to consumers, right, to the economy. The real threat is to the politicians and their reelection efforts. But they have to create this. But they actually rely on the, the economists, the, 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 the journalists, to spread this false propaganda out there, to go out there and beat the drums for inflation. And, and, and create this false reasoning as to why we need it, when the real reason is that the politicians need it to renege on their promises that they made to get reelected. Uh, but that's not what they're going to say. And, and listen to some of the examples. You know, you got Steve Leisman, right, who is the senior economic reporter on CNBC, and he was explaining on Monday of this week why uh, falling prices are bad. When prices start to fall, it looks good, feels good, everybody's into it. But let me show you some reasons why deflation is not the best thing, a thing you want to hope for so much and why central bankers are so afraid of it. The first thing is they don't know how to fight it. They, they know how to fight inflation by raising interest rates. But when you get deflation, you have to cut and you can't really cut below zero. You can, but people don't really love it that the bankers don't really like doing that so much the trouble you also have overall is in aggregate demand why buy now if things are going to be cheaper tomorrow that causes the economy overall to decline finally asset prices can fall and so can wages when inflation falls so he acknowledges that common sense would tell you that it's a good thing but then he comes out and says but it's not you see if you go to if you if you're a senior economist like me you know, and you study economics and you major in it, and you know, then you realize, you know, you know, the, the, then you know the truth. You see, because you know, I had all this education and I can figure out what you, you know, novices, neophytes don't know, right? Because there's something bigger going on. Because what I know that you don't know is if uh, you know people think that prices are going to go down, they're not going to shop, right? He comes up with that old line that people aren't going to shop. We buy now. Why buy now when things are going to be cheaper tomorrow? Well, you know, Steve, you know why you buy now? Because you want it. That's why. Why buy a television set? 
It's going to be cheaper if you wait. Yeah, but I want to watch it now. Why buy a new iPhone? Why don't you wait? It'll be cheaper. Yeah, but I want to use it right now. Hey, you know, why wait? Why buy a new car now? Why don't you wait a year? It might be a little bit cheaper. Yeah, but I want to, I want to drive it right now. What if I die? I might not be around next year. I want it now, right? People want things now. There is a time value of money, and it's pretty, pretty big. I mean, maybe, maybe if you thought the price of something would be 50% lower in a year, you might wait. Some people won't. Remember, I gave the example of people buying iPhones. They wouldn't even wait two months to get them 90% cheaper in China. But nobody is going to wait a year to get something 1% cheaper, 2% cheaper. You're just going to buy it. You're not going to care. And in fact, if it does get cheaper, well, fine. The next time I buy, I'll catch a break. But he raises that nonsense about it. But then the other thing that he says is that the central bankers don't like deflation because they don't know how to fight it. They, they know how to fight inflation, but they don't know how to fight deflation. And so they, they'd rather have the devil they know, the one that they know how to deal with, which first of all, there's, you don't even have to fight falling prices. Just enjoy it. Accept it as the natural bounty of a vibrant, productive economy. But what do they mean they don't know how to fight it? Deflation is the easiest thing for central bankers to fight. See, inflation is the hard thing to fight because in order to fight inflation, and we're going to be fighting it soon, you know, or we're going to surrender to it and be uh, overwhelmed by it. But it's the, you, you fight inflation in an unpopular way. Like when Paul Volcker raised interest rates up to, what, 18% in 1980. He was fighting inflation. And that was very unpopular because he had to take the punch bowl away, right? You have to have tight money. You have to force the government to reduce its spending, right? No central banker wants to fight inflation because they, they're the bad guy, right? Uh, infl deflation theory is easy. Deflation makes, you're popular when you fight deflation. And in fact, you're every politician's best friend, right? Deflation is the easiest thing in the world to overcome. The problem is, and when, when, when Leesman says they want inflation because they know, they know how to fight it, they want it like a hole in the head. I mean, at least they want it in a way that it's acknowledged. They need inflation to wipe out government debt, but they have to make sure that nobody knows about it that nobody's worried about it because if the inflation actually shows up and eventually it will, because it's going to be so bad, you won't be able to keep it out. But when the inflation is showing up in the CPI in a meaningful way, not just, you know, one, 2%, but four five, 6% or more. Now the central bank has to fight it. Now, Steve Leisman acts as if, well, they're happy to do that. No, they're not. How are they going to fight that inflation? If inflation picked up right now, Right? If all of a sudden inflation was 5 or 6% right now and everything else was the same, what would the Fed do? Nothing. Could they fight that inflation? How could they? They're going to jack interest rates way up. I mean, you can't just raise them from zero to 25 bips. If you've got 5% inflation, you're going to have to jack your, your, your rates up to 6 7% in order to stop it. Right? You can't. Can we do that? I mean, you, what would happen? This would be the biggest financial Armageddon in the history of, of America. The Fed dreads that battle. The deflation battle is the one they want to fight. That's why they're contriving the phony threat, right? In fact, to put it in perspective, and this is probably one of the funniest reports I, I've, I've, I've seen, also on CNBC, Michelle Caruso Cabrera does a report on Venezuela. You want to create inflation? It's easy. Just ask Venezuela. Take a look at their inflation rate in Venezuela. It's running at an eye-popping 65 percent. 
How do they manage to do this when the rest of the world is trying to fight falling prices? It's easy. Two things. They print money. They deficit spend. Venezuela solved the problem, right? How can we emulate Venezuela? What are they doing right that everybody else is doing wrong, right? In fact, maybe they're doing it too right, right? Although if inflation was good and you've got 65% inflation in Venezuela, their economy should be booming, right? Right, I guess, well, they'd say, well, that's a little bit too much of a good thing. But then, you know, she reveals the secret, right? What is the secret to their success? They print money. They deficit spend. The government is spending more money than it brings in from oil revenues and taxes, and it's running a deficit. But they still want to spend... So what do they do? They borrow the money again from their central bank, which prints it up and gives it to them. Deficit spending of 22 and a half percent of GDP. France is begging to be allowed to spend at four and a half percent of GDP for their deficit. Poor France is begging just to be allowed to spend a deficit of four and a half percent. Why not just let them go up to 22 and a half percent like Venezuela and they'd solve all their problems too, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, there, there's, she's, she's acknowledging that Venezuela has a lot of inflation because they're deficit spending. Well, isn't that what we're doing? They're doing the same thing as us. The main difference is the Venezuelans don't print the reserve currency. And we do. So we've been given a pass. But believe me, if, if uh, we were printing you know, pesos, if nobody wanted dollars, we'd have 65% inflation too by now. Right. Because, and our debts to GDP would be much greater than they are because we couldn't sell our bonds externally. So the government would be printing even more and more money. We would have already been at that point. So don't you know, don't think yet Venezuela's got a monopoly on 65 percent inflation. We may get there and it's not going to be a good thing. I mean, Venezuela is not an example to set that we should emulate. It shows you this is what can happen when you go down this road. Did Venezuela always have 65% inflation? No, obviously it was lower and got higher because their deficits got bigger. They printed even more money. Well, that's already where we are. And we're going to print more money, right? As I said, you know, and I've seen discussions now, they're actually having discussions on CNBC. I saw one on, on Wednesday where you had a few people around the table and they're all talking about QE4. Like, yeah, I think we're going to have QE4. Maybe we'll have QE4. Well, you know, that's the first time I've seen anybody other than me talk about that. But of course, I talked about it that we, when the Fed first, you know, even before they tapered, I said, well, you know, they can't really taper because if they taper, they're going to have to untaper. Right? And that was one of the reasons. Remember, I was trying to give the Fed credit for being smart enough to know if they tapered they would have to untaper because tapering would bring on a recession. And I thought that it would be better for the Fed to just, you know, never taper and can keep to keep the the illusion, the fantasy going that they could actually do it one day and that if they actually tapered and then it blew up and we went right back into recession and then they had to come right back to QE, that might force more people to figure out what I already knew that it was permanent, that it wasn't temporary, that we were going to have QE forever, right? That was why I thought the Fed might have been smart enough not to caper, but I guess they weren't that smart because they tapered and now they are in the position where they have to reverse it. And, you know, I think already, you know, it could be even money that the next time they meet, they're not going to, um, they're not going to 
taper that last 15 billion. They might pause or they might even ratchet it back up. Right. But so the idea that our money printing days are coming to an end is nonsense. Right. We're just getting started. Right. We're going to print even more. And so we are going to succeed. We are going to create lots of inflation. And of course, that's what the politicians need, not only in America, but all over Europe, right? They, they need a way not to pay their bills without raising taxes or officially defaulting, but they are going to get more than they bargain for because eventually they are going to be forced to try to fight inflation. And that's the one thing they can't do. But they always maintain the, the pretense that they can't. Right. And the Fed always says, well, you know, if inflation becomes a problem, yeah, we know how to fight it. We'll just raise rates. Yeah. Easier said than done. Paul Volcker did it. Let's see Yellen do it. Not a chance. Not a chance. So inflation is going to get a lot worse. And again, you know, with the way they have these CPI numbers now, who knows? I mean, inflation can be 20 percent in the real world. And it might only be 4 or 5% in the CPI fantasy world of government. And the government might say, well, 4 or 5% is not that bad. You know, we can handle that. It's better than the alternative, which is uh, a depression. So who knows how high inflation might get? It could get to 65% in the real world. And then it might be 15% or something in the CPI. And then what are they going to do? Right? The cat will be out of the bag. And the dollar will be collapsing. Prices will be rising. And nobody will be talking about deflation. Nobody will be talking. It will be completely banished. It will all be about, well, how much inflation is or is too much inflation. The public is going to be screaming about it. I already brought up, I think, in the, the last week's podcast that all of these polls, I mean, all these articles I'm reading about European deflation and everybody in Europe is complaining about rising prices. People in America are complaining about rising prices. Even though, in theory, they dropped. In fact, we we had a you know this the PPI number that came out uh, Wednesday this week, which was the first decline in producer prices in a year. We're down, I think, one tenth. Um, but the public is still complaining about rising prices. That's what is impacting their lives, and the government is saying, "Well, they're not rising fast enough." But again, it's for the government. And that is what the Fed is worried about, too. It's the same dynamic in the United States. It's not just the European politicians who borrow too much money. We have more debt than any of those European countries. And it's growing, you know, daily. And in fact, the government's ability to service the debt with taxes continues to diminish as more and more people leave the labor force. As more and more people lose a full-time job and they get a part-time job, they go from being taxpayers to tax takers, right? They're no longer writing checks to the IRS. They're getting money from the government to supplement their meager incomes. So the tax base is shrinking and the debts are increasing. So how is it possible? And think about the Social Security problem. All the people that are not paying Social Security taxes that the government was counting on. People that were supposed to be in the workforce paying Social Security taxes, they're not paying. And more and more people are taking early retirement from Social Security. They can't get jobs anyway, so they might as well start taking their Social Security early. So the government is having to pay all of these Social Security benefits. They don't have the taxes. You've got all these students taking on all these loans. 
they're not even going to school, or if they're going to school, they're just enrolling, but they're not going to class, they're online, they're not learning anything, they're borrowing money that they can't repay, the debt is exploding. Same thing I mentioned on the auto loans, people taking out all, borrowing all this money, the government's on the hook for every dime of it. How are they going to pay it back? They can't. They can't pay it back. They need inflation. That's what the Federal Reserve is looking at. That's what the government is looking at. That's why so long. They can't raise rates. They can't stop the QE because if the, if the Fed stops the QE, the government has to find real buyers for its treasuries. There aren't that many people. I said, unless, you know, unless we, unless we get aliens coming to another planet, you know, there's not enough people on Earth to buy all the treasuries without the Fed. It just can't happen. And, but people have just lived in this fantasy land uh, for so long. And I'm wondering, you know, when they finally do reverse all this stuff, is anybody, you know, anybody on these networks, anybody going to think, hey, isn't this what Peter Schiff said a year ago? Or didn't he tell us this? Didn't he warn us about this? No, I, there's, not a, there's not a chance anybody is going to acknowledge that. I'll have to do it myself. We'll have to come up with some kind of YouTube video. Um, but they, they, won't, they won't acknowledge it because they never do, right? They never want to give uh, the people who call it correct credit because they want to have the same clowns on again to try to justify, well, I guess, you know, the Fed needs QE. The same people that thought it was over and done, that believed it from day one, the same people that were buying up dollars and selling gold because they were so confident that the Fed was actually going to raise rates, that the Fed was actually going to end QE, when to me, it was so blatantly obvious that it could never happen, that it didn't matter what the Fed said. They couldn't possibly do it. So either they were lying or they were just so damn ignorant, they didn't know they couldn't do it. And I wasn't sure which was worse, incompetent uh, or lying. I mean, you would think lying would be worse because incompetent is even more dangerous because incompetence would show that they actually believed that their QE was working. They were so convinced they can stop it because they believed it worked, even though it was obvious it didn't. Because believing it works means you're going to keep on doing it. And that is what they're going to do. And, you know, if people bought the dollar based on the QE that they think that Europe is going to do, wait till they see the QE that we're actually going to do, right? The mother of all QE is coming, you know, and, it, you know, it, it, it's going to be much bigger on our side of the pond than on the European side, because you're still going to have some resistance from the Germans and parts of the economy in Europe. You know, they can't go all in on QE. The way, the way the U.S. can. So we're going to get a, 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 a much bigger dose of it over here. And, you know, will they claim victory? Yeah. You know, I think when prices really start to rise, again, it's going to be, they're going to think the Fed did a good job. Fed did a good job. They saved us yet again from the imaginary threat, the ogre of deflation who threatened to ravage the country, right? So we're not, it, it's not that ogre. Right, that's going to that that's going to kill us. It's going to be the the genie, right? Uh, it's and it's not going to be the genie. It's going to be the great the great gin, because genie sounds too benevolent. It's going to be something worse than an ogre uh, that is going to end up getting us on the inflation front, because unlike Steve Leesman, what he said, they may know how to fight it, but they don't have the guts to do it. Right? We survived the medicine, right? When Volker gave us this, the medicine to cure us from the disease, the disease died. Well, now we don't just need medicine. We need chemotherapy. We need radiation therapy. 
we can't even survive the cure, let alone the disease. But the problem is, if we don't die from the cure, we sure as hell will die from the disease. So Bloomberg wrote an article about Sweden and their declining consumer prices. The title of the article is What Yellen Needs to Learn from Sweden Fast. Right? So things are really unraveling. Sweden is a disaster and Yellen better you know, pay attention, right? Here, forget the bigger than forecast drop in U.S. retail sales. The surprising tumble in U.K. inflation to a five-year low and the slide in German investor confidence. For central banks around the world, the most informative piece of economic data released anywhere this week was the news that Swedish consumer prices fell 0.10th of a percent in September from a year earlier. So this is the most important economic news, that the Swedes are actually spending four-tenths of one percent less to buy something this year than last year. So something that cost the equivalent of $100 last year because this year it only costs $99.60. This is the biggest disaster happening anywhere on the planet. Here, the seventh monthly decline of the year leaves the Reichsbank dicing with deflation. Oh my God, they must be pulling their hair out. Here, the world's oldest central bank has already undershot its 2% inflation target for almost three years. Okay, so they've been under, under 2% inflation for almost three years. And has anything happened? No. Have they fallen into an economic, you know, pit? No. Here. And now, and, and is now poised to respond by the end of this month by cutting its benchmark repo rate from a le- record low of 0.25%. So their interest rates are already 0.25%. And now they have to make them even lower because they don't have enough inflation. Meanwhile, look how low interest rates already are. And again, this is all nonsense. There's nothing wrong with the Swedish economy. It's one of the economies that we've been investing in. And yet they, they're determined to create inflation because they want to fight a problem that doesn't exist by creating a problem that will exist. Inflation is a problem. The absence of inflation is not. And the fact that consumer prices are stable in Sweden is nothing that the Swedish central bank should be concerned about. They should be bragging about it. They should be high-fiving themselves because they have protected and achieved price stability, even if prices are down. And remember, if your goal is price stability, that means sometimes prices will go up a little bit and sometimes they'll go down a little bit. But over time, they'll still stay, they'll stay stable. And so that's kind of what uh, they've achieved in Sweden is price stability. That is what central bankers used to strive for. Now it's a sign of failure. Success as a central banker is inflation, is making sure that prices rise by 2% a year. That's what's success. If prices are rising by less than 2% a year, then you're a failure. But it's not a failure for the country. It's not a failure for citizens or savers or wage earners. But what is all this telling you? If even countries that are doing well, if they're prepared to sacrifice their currency because they're worshiping you know, the inflation god, right? And they're, they're, they want to sacrifice the saver, the wage earner on this altar of inflation. What is it telling you, right? What is it telling you if all the central banks say, we got to have 2% inflation? They're saying that you are going to lose money. We will make sure that if you're dumb enough to save your money, that we will punish you for doing that. And so it's going to undermine savings. It's going to undermine the appeal of currencies. And it means that you got to be cognizant of this. 
You've got to invest in gold. You got to own real assets. You got to own equities. You can't just keep your money in the bank because the central bankers will make sure that if you do that, you are a loser. They will make sure to transfer your purchasing power to somebody else. That is what's going to happen. But it is amazing, too. And as I said, how ridiculous. And this guy, Simon Kennedy, is the Bloomberg columnist that wrote this ridiculous article. Um, You know, instead of us learning a lesson from Sweden, the Swedes ought to learn a lesson from us on what not to do. They should not be cutting their interest rates. They should not be obsessing over a lack of inflation. And wait till they see what a disaster the United States comes becomes. And maybe other countries will, will learn from our bad example instead of what people think. People think that they've learned you know, from our good example, right? Because everybody thinks that quantitative easing has been such a big success. Wait till they see what an abysmal failure it really is. Wait till that failure is more widely appreciated around the world. And maybe uh, the actions like the Swedish bank, instead of, you know, panicking and slashing interest rates as a result of uh, stable prices, maybe they will uh, raise rates and, and just basically take a bow and say, you know what? Our policies are correct. We're not going, we're not ashamed of our low inflation. We will wear it on our sleeves as a badge of honor because we're doing the right thing. The Peter Schiff Show. Quite a few interesting news stories that caught my attention this week. One of them had to do with Obamacare and healthcare costs. You know, I was already talking about this because my business partner in Europe Pacific Bank told me that he had just had his health insurance canceled, I guess, because of Obamacare. And so he had to, you know, get a new plan. And the new plan was less generous in the benefits. And it was about 40% more expensive than the plan that he had. So as a result of the requirements in Obamacare, the plan that he liked, that he already purchased, was discontinued. And now the cheapest one he can buy, he can find is 40% more expensive and it's less comprehensive. Remember, you know, when, when President Obama ran for office, if you like your health care, you can keep it. Well, obviously, that wasn't the case because a lot of people who like their health care couldn't keep it. And now they've got something that they don't like and that's a lot more expensive than what they did like. And I read this story that uh, the healthcare.gov website is not going to be showing the new premiums for next year until uh, November 15th, which is 11 days after the midterm elections. Now, something tells me that the reason they're not going to show the new premiums until after the election is because they don't want the sticker shock from all the people who are going to vote Obama. I mean, obviously, they probably know what the prices are. Right. So why don't they put them up now? Well, because the election hasn't happened yet. They don't want to give people an indication, which means that a lot of people who probably signed up for Obamacare, they're not going to stick with it once they see how much it's going to cost. Right. This whole thing has been a desired disaster. But, you know, the irony of ironies is that because of all the full time jobs that have been lost as a result of Obamacare, Uh, We have all these part-time jobs being created, which adds to the number of jobs being created, which makes makes it appear as if the president's plan is working or the economy is improving, when in fact the only reason the jobs are being created is because uh, Obama's 
uh, a health plan is helping to destroy the full-time jobs. Although that's not the only reason, but it is certainly one of the reasons. But he actually benefits from his own failure, right? The job, it's not the strong economy, uh, but the weak labor market that's producing all these, all these part-time jobs. And the uh, Affordable Care Act is a major uh, contributor to that trend. So the president gets to take credit for Obamacare and the new jobs, even though uh, neither is working the way it was it was promised. I guess the one downside is that a lot of these people who've lost their full time jobs and who are stuck with uh, more expensive health insurance, they may not vote for Democrats in November. So you do have a the real chance uh, that Republicans can pick up uh, seats in both the House and add to their majority there and potentially pick up a majority in the Senate. I guess the one thing that the Democrats have going for them is generally when government programs create more poverty, they also create a better environment for the Democratic message of you're poor because of uh, the rich and because of the greedy employers and you need more government to level the playing field. Vote for me and I will alleviate your poverty by taking money from other people and giving it to you. So it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, yes, as the economy weakens, there's a tendency to blame the incumbents, but the Democrats in general benefit from a weak economy uh, in that they're seen as the ones who are able uh, to uh, you know, solve the problem by just doling out money. But not always the case. Look, I mean, remember, the economy was really bad under Jimmy Carter, and that's what uh, paved the way for, for Ronald Reagan. And, and so that could happen. Uh, but so, as I said, it's, it, you know, we'll see what happens in November, but it's, it, it could go either way uh, when it comes to this election cycle. But the public, obviously, is, is not happy about losing their health care, paying more for health care, losing their full-time jobs, settling for a part-time job. Also, Mark Cuban was in the news because I guess of a controversial article he wrote, and I saw him, he was talking about it on television. His plan uh, would be to limit student loans, limit the amount of money that students can borrow to just $10,000 per year. And he said that would really help the economy more than a tax cut uh, or, you know, any kind of government program, just limit how much students can borrow. And I would agree that placing limits is a good idea, but getting rid of the guaranteed loans altogether is an even better idea. I mean, what Mark Cuban is acknowledging is that the loans aren't helping because colleges are just jacking up tuitions uh, based on the loans. Well, if that's true, then they'll, they'll still be able to jack them up based on a $10,000 limit. I mean, I would say that uh, a $10,000 limit is better than no limit, but why let kids borrow money at all? It's not like they won't be able to go to college. But again, I guess they're afraid of deflation, right? I mean, if deflation is so bad, I guess it would be terrible if colleges cut their tuition prices, right? And, oh, no, tuition prices are falling. This is terrible. This is deflation. But you know what? It would be a bonanza... Uh, for students who actually want to get a college degree. But the problem with these subsidies is that too many people go to college. See, what I don't want more people going to college. We have more than we need. People who are going to college now shouldn't be, and they're being enticed in by these student loans. So if we took away all the student loans, yes, fewer people would go to college, 
But the people who will actually benefit from college, because not everybody will, but the people who actually benefit, they will still go. And they'll pay a lot less money to go because they're not going to be in competition with all these people who shouldn't even be there in the first place. So the only people who go to college will be the people who can benefit from the experience and whom for whom the cost is worth the benefit. See, right now you have so many people who would benefit from a college degree overpaying because so many people who shouldn't even be in college are there anyway, spending government money to bid up tuition. If you take away all the fluff, if you take all the kids out of college that shouldn't be there, that should be learning a trade, that should be working and getting on-the-job experience, if you take them out of the universities and the colleges, right, and let the and, and now uh, the people who actually will benefit don't have to compete with these people. Prices are going to come down. The colleges are going to restructure. They're going to take away a lot of the fluff, right? They're going to cut back on their overhead, and they're going to deliver an affordable college education so that if you want to get go to college, you can get a part-time job. You can work the summers. That's what my dad did. My dad didn't borrow a nickel to go uh, to the University of Connecticut. He didn't get any money from his parents and didn't borrow a dime. Well, then how did he go? He had a summer job. That was it. One summer job paid for it all. The same thing could happen again. You could work your way through college like my dad did if the government wasn't there with these loans. And, you know, my dad, you know, majored in business and accounting, and and he probably benefited from it based on what he ended up doing. He started an insurance agency, and, uh, you know, he used uh, what he learned in college. And so a college degree and the things that my dad studied, you know, probably benefited him. Uh, And so it was worth it for him to have gone to college. Plenty of people today who are going to college, it's not worth it. And since it doesn't cost them any money, you just sign here, you'll get all these government grants. I mean, if you actually have to pay for it out of pocket, if you actually have to have a job, maybe you'll think twice. Maybe, do I really want to go, right? Is this is it really worth it for me? And maybe parents uh, will be able to get more involved. Look, if you, got a, if you got a kid who's barely made it out of high school, right? He's a C and D student, and you know academics is just not his thing, Why encourage that kid to go to college? You just encourage him to waste his time. Figure out what your kids are good at, where their skills are. You don't need a college degree to succeed. In fact, it could be a barrier to success if you're trying to go in the wrong direction. And just because a kid doesn't have the aptitude for college doesn't mean he's a failure. You know, I mean, you know, there are plenty of kids that, you know, that that, that didn't do well in high school that run companies, that start businesses. Right? You don't necessarily have to be book smart to make a lot of money. But you know, to benefit from college, you generally have to be book smart. You have to be academically inclined because the degrees help you with certain kinds of professions. Look, you got to be pretty damn smart to be a medical doctor. Right? And, and so if, you, if your kid is you know, a C&D student, you know, do you think he's going to be an MD? Probably not. But you don't need to be a medical doctor to run a small business. You know, and you can make plenty. There are plenty of people that drop out of high school that can out earn a lot of doctors, you know, or engineers or rocket scientists or, you know, things like that. But you got to be smart to do certain things. And certain things, you know, lend themselves to academia. But if we just got the government out of the student loan business completely, not just limit it like Mark Cuban is saying, but get them out. And I guess if you're going to place limits, if you want to do something like that, maybe make it different. Hey, you can borrow $10,000. If you are an honor student and uh, you're going to major in, you know, in physics or engineering or biochemistry or something like that. But, you know, if you're a C and D student 
and you're planning on going for a liberal arts degree and major in you know Chicano studies or underwater basket weaving, right? No, you can't borrow anything. A college degree, they're not all the same, right? They they want to act like just go to college and it doesn't matter what you major in. Yes, it does. And they're saying go to college no matter how bad you are in high school, no matter how lousy a student you were, right? Go to college, even if you're going to cheat on your exams and copy off your friends and you're going to go and, you know, it doesn't matter. You just have to go so you can get the degree. It does matter. It's a waste of time and we have to admit it. But the reason we don't want to do it, it's the teachers, it's the universities, it's all the money that are all the people that are feeding off this education trough, making a ton of money, a ton of money uh, off the taxpayers, off families, off students, milking them dry uh, with, um, you know, with all this money on education. And if you need more proof, right, about how much the, the unions are milking the taxpayers through education, I read this story, and this is in Reason. I got on Reason.com, and it, you know, it should make your blood boil. Nick, Nick Gillespie wrote the story. Nick's a good guy. And it's about, this is in Illinois, right? Uh, union members, and they're, 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 they're talking about a couple of guys in particular that they mention. They mention them by name. One guy uh, is getting a pension for life where his annual pension is 30,564, another guy getting $37,416 every year for life, right? The value of these pe- pensions, basically the present value of these pensions is about a million dollars. And what did these two members of the Illinois Federation of Teachers, what did they do to earn these pensions? They substitute taught one day each. One day. They didn't dedicate their lives to teaching. They substituted for a day. And you know, what does a substitute teacher do? Nothing. I mean, I remember when I was going to school, when I came to class and there was a substitute, I generally just ditched, right? If I found out that I had a sub, I just took the period off. I didn't even show up. And sometimes if it was afternoon, I just left, right? Because if you knew if the substitute teacher was there, nothing was going to happen. They kind of babysit you. Right until the actual teacher comes back. They don't do anything. So you're talking about somebody who sits in a classroom for 45 minutes and babysits a bunch of kids, right? Let's them do independent study, maybe tell some jokes. I don't know. And because you did that for one day, one day, you get $37,000 every year for the rest of your life. This is what's going on under under the umbrella of education and the unions. It is a boondoggle. And the politicians pander to it because, A, they get massive support from these labor unions in their reelection efforts. But they all know if you talk about education, you get votes because that's how dumb the voters are. You just tug at their heartstrings. Who could be against the kids? Right. The kids are our future. Education, education, that's everybody talks about. We need education. You get votes. And if you talk about this boondoggle, if you come out against the fleecing of America, the fleecing of our young people through this college scam, through these, uh, uh, then you're, oh, you're anti-students, you're anti-education, you know, that, that, so nobody has the guts in American politics to call it what it is. 
to call anybody out. They all just want to get in on it. Me too. Who can be the biggest supporter of education? Who wants it the most? The most subsidies? Who, who you know, yes, I, I care more about education than my opponent. And to prove how much I care about education, I'm willing to have even more subsidies, to spend even more money, you know? And nobody wants to say it doesn't work, it's wrong, because they're going to get clobbered. Plus, of course, all these teachers' unions and these lobbyist groups, independent expenditures, one person comes out and tells the truth, and he's going to be clobbered. You know, the mailboxes are going to be bombarded with flyers and the TV and the radio, all these attack ads on whoever dares. Uh, you know, this is that that's the third rail almost. I mean, it's not just it's uh, Social Security. That's the third rail. It's education. Everybody's got to sign on. Nobody can can tell the truth because the political consequences uh, will be enormous. You know, one final story I want to comment on. I don't even know if I mentioned this when the news first broke, but the Waldorf Astoria, which is owned by Hilton, has been sold uh, to a Chinese company. And actually, if you look at the terms of the deal, it seems like it's a great deal uh, for Hilton because even though they're selling the Waldorf, I think for like $2 billion, they have the right to manage the hotel for the next 100 years. 100 years! So, I mean, they're going to get all the revenue from the hotel, and they're going to get $2 million up front. And the Chinese, in addition to paying $2 million to buy the Waldorf, are going to spend hundreds of millions more to renovate it. Now, obviously, the hotel needs a lot of renovation. Hilton doesn't have the money to renovate it itself, or it doesn't want to. So why not sell it to China, take $2 billion in cash, and let the Chinese pay for the renovations? They can manage the property for the next 100 years. 100 years, it shows you how much money they have in China. They don't know what to do with it, right? They're just going to throw it away. Because look, as far, I guess it's better than holding treasuries, right? You know, because at least in 100 years, they'll own it. What's a treasury going to be worth in 100 years? I mean, I mean what's it going to be worth in 100 days or, a you know, uh, you know uh, but 100 years, clearly nothing, right? So, but now the government is objecting to it. They're considering stopping the deal, I mean, come on, they can't even overpay for a hotel with their money. I mean, we have no objection. They can buy all the treasures they want, but let them try to buy something real with their money. And all of a sudden it's an objection. Now, why are they objection? They're saying it's cyber terrorism or cyber hacking, or they're saying that the President Obama, when he comes to New York, he likes to stay at the Hilton. So what? Like, there's not another hotel if he's worried about the Chinese eavesdropping on the president. Why doesn't the president just stay in another hotel? I mean, you can't tell me that that's the only hotel that the president can stay in. And I don't know, other than the president staying there, how else is the Hilton going to be some kind of base for cyber terrorism? I mean, it's not like the Chinese don't already own property in Manhattan. So what difference does it make? So this whole thing is ridiculous, but you know, it might piss off the Chinese. I mean, we're telling them, yes, buy all the bonds you want, because we know that that's worthless. So keep buying our bonds, right? But heaven forbid you want to actually spend the money that you earned selling Americans all these products that we can't produce. If you actually want to buy something real, well, we're going to come and stop you. Well, you know, if we stop the Chinese enough, they might realize, why are we buying these treasuries? If all we can do with our treasuries is roll them over into more treasuries, if we can never spend the money on anything, because the minute we try to buy something real, 
the government's going to stop us. But then I saw them talking about this thing on on CNBC, right? About the fact that you know we're trying to stop them. We're trying to stop the Chinese from buying the Waldorf. It's Larry Kudlow is interviewing Barney Frank. One of the questions people raise sometimes is, well, but but aren't we constrained by the fact that China has so much about debt? China doesn't buy American debt as a favor to us. China buys American debt because that's the best place to put their money. The Chinese are buying dollars and buying treasuries because it helps them. Yeah, it, it helps them like a hole in the head. I mean, they think it helps them in that it, 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 it preserves the illusion that they have a valid customer in the United States, but it's vendor financing. And yes, there are a lot of vendors who have created illusions for a while by loaning money to deadbeat customers only to have to write down the sales and ultimately take a big charge and have a big drop in their stock price. This is not doing the Chinese economy uh, any good to just bury their money in treasuries uh, and and not use it productively in their own economy and to waste their their land, labor, and capital producing goods for us for which they will never get paid as opposed to producing goods uh, for themselves, right? And so he doesn't even care. He thinks it's an issue. He thinks it doesn't matter what we do to the Chinese, that they'll never stop buying our treasuries because they have to, that they're not doing us any favors, that we're doing them a favor by allowing them to buy our treasuries, as if if we somehow ban China from buying our treasuries, which, of course, we could do, right? We could say we will not pay any interest to uh, uh, on, any, to, on any treasuries held by the Chinese. We could do that, right? We could say if you're, if you have, if you're a Chinese citizen and you own a treasury, we're not going to honor it. So you have to sell it. And if you're not, a, you know, we could so we could do like as if we could do that and somehow that would hurt China. Right. It wouldn't hurt us that, you know, like, yeah, we could really fix those Chinese. Let's make it. Let's let's stop them from buying our treasuries. Yeah. You know, it's it. This is not a symbiotic relationship where everybody wins or a relationship where China wins. You know, we win. It's a, we're parasites to China and our victory is going to be hollow because, yes, in the short run, the politicians can borrow more money and spend more money and we can live beyond our means. But all this is doing is hollowing out our economy. We're becoming more and more dependent on the charity of the Chinese and the rest of the world. Our economy is continuing to evolve in the wrong direction. And so the bigger we make these problems, the harder it's going to be, the more painful it's going to be when the Chinese do figure it out and everybody else figures it out and they stop buying our bonds or actually do the opposite and try to sell, try to get rid of them. The Peter Schiff Show. You know, another crazy story that actually got a lot of press. I only read the article because I saw it on television. But a guy that makes $15 an hour and he works at Wells Fargo sent a letter to the CEO demanding, demanding a $10,000 a year pay raise, which would be about a 30% raise right for this guy but not only for himself but for all uh 300,000 of well Fargo's employees well I guess maybe not the top executives I mean this letter was sent to the CEO I guess he's not demanding that the CEO get a raise but I guess everybody else and he actually posted it up on Reddit so not only did he send it out to 200,000 people and apparently he actually researched and got the emails to 200,000 employees. How, I mean, how long did it take him to CC 200,000 people? Or did he send out, did he forward the thing individually? 
Does he have that kind of free time? I wonder if he did all this work on the company's dime. I mean, did he do this while at, at work, collecting his $15 an hour at Wells Fargo? Or did he do this on his free time? You know, did he do it from his home computer? You know, I'd want to know that if I was uh, uh, his boss. But here's a, a little excerpt from this guy's letter. He says, well, think as well of the positive publicity in the time of extreme consumer skepticism towards banks. By doing this, meaning giving everybody a $10,000 raise, Wells Fargo will not only help to make its people, its family more happy, productive, and financially stable, it will also show the rest of the United States, if not the world, yes, big corporations can have a heart other than their philanthropic endeavors. So, yeah, this is going to be good for the company. Show the world you have a heart and just overpay your workers. Just give everybody a raise, a $10,000 raise, regardless of merit, regardless of a fair market value for the work being done. Obviously, Wells Fargo doesn't need to give its employees $10,000 raises. If it, if, if it did, if Wells Fargo's workers were getting enticed by better offers from other companies because Wells Fargo was underpaying them, then they might have to give them a raise. But the fact that they have 300,000 employees who are not quitting shows you that the pay is adequate. So why pay them more? Just to show that they have a heart? You know, if you get in a taxi cab and the cab driver says, that'll be $15, do you say, well, why don't you make it 25 to show that I've got a heart? I mean, you give them a tip, which is expected, but do you ask them to increase? You go to a restaurant and they think you get a bill. Do you ask them to just double it just because you've got a heart and you want the you want everybody to make more money? You know, and nobody. You know, if you go if you get into a car accident and you you go in and take your car into a repair shop and they give you a bill, do you say, "Well, that's not enough. Why don't you charge me more?" I mean, everybody shops around. Everybody tries to get a good deal. Nobody has to prove how much they care by overpaying for the things that they buy. Why should Wells Fargo be any different? They're buying the labor of their employees. Why should they pay more uh, than the market bears just to show that they care? What about the $3 billion that it would cost them? They have 300,000 employees. That would take that would cost them $3 billion. Um, you know, I'm sure that Wells Fargo has a use for that $3 billion. I mean, they're making money now, but what's going to happen, you know, Next year, these companies could have huge losses. They're going to need the profits they're making now because of the losses that they're going to get in this next real estate downturn, in this next recession. What are they going to do? Are they going to give all their employees a big raise and then ask for the money back? Or no, I guess I'll just count on the the government to bail them out. But this is all this nonsense argument that it's good for you, your company, it's good for the economy if you just pay the workers more. No, it's not. If you overpay the workers, it's bad for the economy because that means you, you your profits are reduced. Therefore, your ability to invest, to grow the business, to make capital investments, to withstand the downturns in the economy, you, uh, you compromise the viability of the business. Long term, if a company just overpays its workers, it's going to go out of business. It's going to be uncompetitive. You know, in order to protect the jobs of its employees, companies need to make sure not to overpay their employees. The surest way to go broke is to overpay your workers. Now, there is an argument. You can argue that where it's worthwhile, you can pay people more money to retain a better quality of worker. 
to have less turnover and more more loyalty. But that's a decision that an employer makes on his own. And if and if paying people more money would benefit Wells Fargo, then I'm sure the Wells Fargo would have figured it out on its own. It doesn't need some $15 an hour clerk to tell them what's the best way to run Wells Fargo. If that guy knew such a, if that guy knows so much about running Wells Fargo, he wouldn't be getting $15 an hour, right? He'd be at, you know, at a much, at a much higher level, you know, and I hear this story too, all the time about Henry Ford. And it's one of the biggest B, you know, BS, uh, you know, spins, you know, Henry Ford paid its work, his workers $5 an hour. And people say that he did that because he wanted his workers to be able to afford to buy his cars. Now, he did mention that in a, in, a, in a conference that said, hey, I think it's nice for the people who make the cars to be able to afford to buy them. But that's not why he did it. And of course, if that was his reason, then it wouldn't have worked because the amount of money that he was going to lose by basically doubling the pay of his workers was, is way more than he would make on the margin if every worker bought one of his cars. So, I mean, it would be a suicide mission because the company would lose money. The reason that Henry Ford raised wages is because he had high turnover. And remember, Henry Ford pioneered the assembly line. And what the assembly line meant is that every worker depended on another worker for the line to move because you had certain, everybody specialized in one part of the process. And so you had this production line. And so it, it required a lot of training. And what would happen is he would hire people, train them, and then they would quit. And now he'd have to train them again, and it would be disruptive. So Henry Ford said, look, I got to make all these cars. I got to make sure that the people I train don't quit. And how am I going to do that? I'm just going to pay them so much money that they can't possibly quit because they're not going to be able to get a better job. That's what he did. He made that decision on his own. And given the amount of money that he had to spend training people, and giving, uh, given the production line, the assembly line, it made sense for Henry Ford, and he did it. He did it to reduce his labor costs, not to increase them. That's what happened. Now, obviously, it doesn't work for all businesses. Every business didn't do what Henry Ford did, but Henry Ford had to do it because he realized that he would reduce his costs. But just because it reduced costs for Henry Ford doesn't mean it reduces it for everybody. You know, people all want to talk about, well, look at Walmart and Costco, right? Why, you know, why doesn't Walmart just pay people more money like Costco does? Well, Costco employs a fraction of the number of workers. They can go for a higher quality guy because there's fewer of them. You know, you go into a Walmart and there's employees everywhere. There's people greeting you in the parking lot, uh, there's people saying hello and goodbye when you come into the store. There's lots of people in the aisles helping you. You go into Costco and you grab a gigantic uh, cart and you do it all yourself. And then you have some people there that are more knowledgeable, uh, but you know there's not nearly as many people. So if you force Walmart to pay as much as Costco, they might be able to do it if they fired two-thirds of their workers. But is that really the goal? No, they expect they expect... Um, um, Walmart to hire like Walmart, but pay like Costco. It can't be done. Right? And of course, they, they have different types of merchandise that they're selling. So what works for one company doesn't work for others. And just because Costco can pay higher wages to workers doesn't mean that Walmart can pay the same wages to its workers because it can't 
because it's apples to oranges comparison, just like going back uh, to the Henry Ford days to try to say, hey, just raise pay. Just pay workers more money and everybody wins. Well, if everybody won, it would already happen. The fact that people are trying to force, you know, they're trying to force feed higher paychecks down the throats of companies is because it doesn't work. It doesn't benefit the companies, but people think it benefits the workers and it might benefit some, but more workers will suffer uh, as a result. One interesting thing that happened this week is I read a Paul Krugman column in which he didn't get it all wrong. I mean, normally he doesn't get anything right. And this time he kind of did. The article is called Revenge of the Unforgiven. How Righteousness Killed the World Economy. And he actually gets some stuff right, although he actually gets it right for the wrong reason. So I'm not even sure if that counts, but I'll give it to him anyway, because it's the closest he's ever come, right? And he basically is saying that the problem with the economy is that we haven't really deleveraged, which we haven't. And I've been saying that all along. And he says the reason is that consumers have all this debt and we haven't let them off the hook. And that's the problem. He points out that during the mania, during the housing bubble, consumers borrowed a lot of money to buy houses, uh, you know, to buy cars, to buy uh, other consumer goods. And they borrowed too much money, which is true. But we also doesn't point out is it's because of the policies he was recommending at the time that consumers were led by the Pied Piper of debt at the Fed, you know, down this road. So the reason that consumers are so loaded up with debt is because of the policies that Krugman supported at the time. But forget about that. He mentions that, well, now you've got all these consumers that have too much debt. And he's saying that normally there would be defaults. Right. And that's how you get out from under the debt. But he says now, because people think that, you know, that people should be responsible for their debts, that people should have to repay their debts instead of, you know, letting them off the hook, that this is what is screwing up the economy, that we need debt forgiveness. We need debt relief. We need to relieve consumers of all their debt so that they can go out and spend again. See, he's saying consumers can't buy stuff because they have too much debt. If we just wiped out their debts, they can start shopping again. Yeah, they bought a bunch of things they couldn't afford with borrowed money. And if we tell them they don't have to pay it back and they can start all over again, well, now they can buy more stuff that they can't afford. The reason they can't buy it now is they can't get enough credit because the lenders know that they're broke. But if we wipe out the debt and let it all start over again, that this is going to be some kind of magic cure. Now, the reason I'm saying, I mean, he's partially got it right, is he's right in that we do need to have debt defaulting, but not government programs to bail out individual debtors. The market will take care of that. Individuals can go bankrupt. Individuals already have the ability to discharge their debts other than student loans. Individuals can walk away from their mortgages and they're out from under debt. They can walk away from their car loans. They can declare personal bankruptcy. So all that can happen. The government is not standing in the way of that. And so you're still going to get a traditional debt restructuring without government uh, policies. What's happening is that the governments are not defaulting. It's the governments that have too much debt. It's the U.S. government. It's governments in Europe. uh, It's in Japan. The governments have too much debt, and it's the governments that need to default. They're the ones that are not doing it. See, we're trying to force the government to honor all its commitments. We're telling the government, pay all the interest on all the money you borrowed, 
make all the payments to all the voters that you promised, keep all your commitments to Social Security, keep all your commitments to Medicare, keep all your commitments to um, uh, Obamacare or all your commitments to pensions, right? But they don't have the money. That is the problem. It's the fact that governments have too much debt and that none of it is being restructured. What the governments need is to, is to follow Krugman's advice. But Krugman doesn't give that advice to government. Although in a way he does in that he's advocating for inflation. Because inflation does wipe out government debt. But in a way that's very destructive to the economy. And in a way that imposes tremendous costs on the people that Krugman seems to be so concerned about. Because if the government uses inflation to wipe out its debts, then you're increasing the cost of food, you're increasing the cost of energy, you're increasing other costs that bear more heavily on the middle class and the poor. And if middle class people and poor people have to spend more money on food and energy that's more expensive because the Fed creates inflation to wipe out its debts, they have less money available to spend on other things. The truth of the matter is we do need... uh, restructuring. We do need to get rid of all this debt, but no one has the guts to admit it. No politician has the guts to default. That's exactly what we need. In that respect, Krugman is right. He doesn't even know it because he's got he's right about the wrong part of it. And yes, we do need austerity. He's criticizing austerity. We need real austerity. Austerity where the government cuts. All this European austerity, it's all happened where the austerity is supposedly with the private sector, it's not in the government. The government is not reducing its obligations. The obligations are, in fact, growing. And Krugman thinks that the reason that we're having all these problems is because we've had too much austerity. We just needed more money printing, more stimulus, more official debt forgiving. I mean, and how do the governments forgive debt? Because they don't just tell people you don't have to pay, because then the the lenders would suffer, right? If you just told people you don't have to pay your mortgage, you don't have to pay your car loan, it's the lender who ends up collapsing. So what Krugman really wants is for the government to let the borrower off the hook, but assume the responsibility on the part of the taxpayer. Well, if you saddle the taxpayer with debt, how does that help? If you take the debt away from the individual and just throw it on the taxpayer because you don't want to let the big banks collapse, you have to keep them solvent so somebody has to repay the bills. Well, who does the government think the taxpayers are? It's the same people. But then Krugman thinks, well, we won't tax anybody. We'll just print money as if that doesn't have any consequences on the population. If it doesn't doesn't have any adverse consequences on the public. The only thing that would work would be for the government to actually renege on the commitments that it cannot uh, meet. And that would force some people would have to go to work. Some people that are collecting government checks would have to get actual jobs. And what that might mean is the government would have to reform the laws, the labor laws, get rid of the minimum wage, so people who are currently collecting welfare and food stamps or disability, who are in fact able-bodied people who are able to work, would work. But they don't have to now because the government gives them a better deal with money they don't have. But of course, I think the Crudman view of, of, of the world in the short run is still going to work out. It's still going to win out, even though he should already be discredited. As the economy starts to implode, just as the Fed starts to take away the QE, and instead of having built a lasting recovery, as Krugman uh, predicted, we're right back in recession. Krugman is going to still come back and say it wasn't big enough. We didn't do it big enough. 
we were too timid. Well, he's going to get his wish because, again, we're going to get the mother of all QE coming. And there's no way Paul Krugman is going to be able to say it wasn't big enough when it completely blows up, not just in his face, but in everybody's face. You know, when it comes to labor laws, as bad as things are in America, you know, in many places, they're actually worse. In Great Britain, they have a minimum wage, just like we have here, but they don't have an exemption for the intellectually disabled, the way we do here in America. Remember, I got all that flack when I was on The Daily Show, and I talked about paying the intellectually disabled less than the federal minimum wage, which is something that's already allowed. I mean, they acted as if it was a crazy proposal that I had come up with that we should allow that to happen, when in fact that is the case, and that is the only reason that so many intellectually disabled Americans are employed. The only reason they're employed is because they can offer to work for less than the minimum wage. And that's because their disabilities mean that they operate at a much lower productivity level. So if an employer were forced to play, pay an intellectually disabled worker the same minimum wage that he would pay a fully abled worker, who's he going to hire? Obviously, he's going to hire uh, the mentally capable individual who's going to be more productive than the intellectually disabled individual. But if the intellectually disabled individual is allowed to work for less than the minimum wage, and let's say that a intellectually disabled person has half the productivity as an abled person, and you can measure that. Let's say you know, you're, you're, you're uh, doing a particular task, and it takes the intellectually disabled person twice as long to do the task as the fully uh, mentally abled person. Well, if you can pay the disabled worker half the minimum wage, then the employer, in theory, would be indifferent to hiring a intellectually abled versus a disabled. But if you're forced to hire and pay the intellectually disabled person the same money, even though they're going to take twice as long to do the job, then that person is twice as expensive. And people aren't in business. Employers aren't going to lose money. They're not going to pay twice uh, the labor rate to hire somebody who's intellectually disabled. But if they can pay them less, then they'll work. And that is the rationale for the exemption. And, of course, as I try to explain to uh, Samantha B., of course, you don't. that's all that explanation is on the cutting room floor, that intellectually disabled people who have jobs are not supporting families. They are generally supported by their families. They still live uh, with their parents, and they're working more for the personal satisfaction, the pride, the sense of accomplishment. And the money that they earn, uh, they can use that to buy the extra things with the pride that they worked for the money. Uh, and so it's a win-win. Uh, everybody benefits from the fact that there is an exemption. But in Britain, there is no exemption. And so obviously, the intellectually disabled can't get jobs in the UK. So I guess they sit at home uh, and do nothing, which means that the law is imposing a greater disability than, than nature. Because when you force uh, intellectually disabled workers to be subject to the minimum wage, you're basically telling them that they're worthless. Yes, you can make a small contribution, but since you can't make a large enough contribution, then you can't contribute anything. 
And we shouldn't allow the intellectually disabled to make decisions for themselves. After all, they're intellectually disabled. So let's tell them that they're even more worthless uh, than uh, their uh, their handicap or I don't know if you're, whatever you're going to call it. And, and and say that, you know, you, you can't do anything. So apparently this guy and we've got, you know, the, 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 the offending sound clip. I guess it was another one of these things like a Mitt Romney moment where, you know, you're you're talking to a conservative audience and somebody happens to have a microphone on uh, to catch you saying something that is completely legitimate and for which you should be proud. But when the public hears it, rather than trying to defend what you say, you, you know, throw yourself on the sword and you apologize profusely for your heartlessness. And I don't know where I could have been or what, how I could have said something so crazy and so stupid. I am profoundly sorry. That's what happened to this British minister, uh, David Froude. And then you make a really good point about the disabled. Now, I have not thought through and we have not got a system for um, you know, kind of going below the minimum wage, uh, but we do have um, uh, you know, universal credit is really useful for people with the fluctuating conditions who can do some work up and down uh, because they can uh, and get and get um, you know bolstered universal credit and they can move that amount up and down. Now there is a small. There is a group, and I know exactly, I mean, they're actually, as you say, they're not worth the full wage. But actually, I'm going to go and think about that particular There is something we can do nationally and without distorting anything, which actually, if someone wants to work at £2 an hour, it's worth it can be actually. All he said is, yes, I know there are some intellectually disabled people, and, you know, if, if they could be allowed to work for less than minimum wage... Uh, because they're not worth the full wage. And again, what he means by they're not worth it is their productivity is not high enough in order for them to be able to be paid a full wage. He's saying if they could be paid less than the minimum wage, well, then they can have jobs. And this produced complete uproar in Britain. Uh, they're calling for this guy guy's uh, resignation or to be fired. Uh, he's had to apologize uh, profusely for his statements. He's had to say how much he cares about the intellectually disabled. Of course, the people who want to apply the minimum wage to the intellectually disabled, they don't care about them at all. All they care about is the intellectually abled person who maybe didn't get the job because the intellectually disabled person was able to be hired because they were able to work uh, for less than minimum wage. See, the only people who benefit from applying to applying the minimum wage to the intellectually disabled are the fully abled people who end up getting the jobs that the intellectually disabled people are legally prevented from taking. That's all you're doing. But again, this is such a politically charged subject that nobody wants to explain it. Because somehow, if you are in favor of freeing intellectually disabled from a law that makes it illegal for them to work, if you say we should exempt them from the minimum wage, right, then you're a heartless, cruel person who wants the intellectually disabled exploited, even though the result is they don't get hired at all. But the reason, the reason some people have to be so against this rule is because once you admit that the, inter that the minimum wage law 
creates unemployment, even among the intellectually disabled. The minute you make that admission, you've admitted that the, inter- that the minimum wage creates unemployment. Because it's not just the intellectually disabled who are put out of work by the minimum wage. There are a lot of other people who also have few skills, but who are not intellectually disabled, but who are also not worth it to their employer in terms of their productivity. They are not worth the minimum wage. And so they are also legally prevented from having a job. But nobody wants to acknowledge that problem. And so to pretend it doesn't exist We have to apply it to everybody, including the intellectually disabled. And the fact that we've prevented them from working, well, that's a small consolation, which really shows you that the proponents of applying the minimum wage to the intellectually disabled don't give a damn about the intellectually disabled. They don't care about the personal satisfaction and the sense of accomplishment that they are being denied. They would just assume force every employer to fire their intellectually disabled workers just so they can sit on their intellectual high horse of feigned morality and, 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 and just pretend that they care when reality is uh, it's the people like this particular minister who actually understands the problem and who cares about the intellectually disabled but now in order to save you know his political career has to pretend otherwise and has to support policies that he knows intellectually knows will actually hurt the very people that he has to, uh, you know, show how much he cares about. The The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I I guess I'm not going to say the I told you so's just yet. I'm going to hold off just a little bit longer until Janet Yellen and her buddies at the Federal Reserve actually taper the taper or pause. I don't know if I, maybe I'll wait for them to reverse it. I'm not sure, but this is the first week. This is the first week. And I don't know how many where everybody else is now starting, starting to say things that I've been saying all year long, although they're still saying possibility, even though I was saying certainty. And what we're talking about, of course, is the, end of the taper, a pause or reversal of the taper, and in fact, the launching of QE4, right? Now, I've been saying this, I've been a lone voice out there in the wilderness saying that it's all a bluff, the Fed's not going to raise rates, they're going to restart QE. In fact, if you remember, the main reason that I thought that the Fed might not taper at all was because I said that if they taper, they are going to have to reverse the process and that will be very damaging for the Fed's credibility. And so rather than taper and then have to reverse, it's better to just pretend you're going to taper but never do it. That's what they did at one point, but they got so much heat. So many people were saying, why isn't the Fed tapering? What do they know? Don't they have confidence in the U.S. economy? So I think they ultimately caved in and tapered because they thought they looked even worse not tapering than tapering knowing full well that they would have to reverse at some point. And that is exactly what happened this week. In fact, that's the only reason that the market wasn't down even more because in response to some statements by Bullard and this now renewed optimism 
that maybe interest rates won't rise at all in 2015. You had a 263-point rally in the Dow on Friday. We also had a recovery on Thursday when the statements first began uh, uh, coming up. And so the Dow was still down on the week, uh, but not nearly as much as would have been the case had it not been for the Fed. Also, we had some statements on Wednesday with respect to Janet Yellen that she remained confident in the U.S. recovery despite all of the bad economic data that had come out and despite the decline in the stock market. In fact, just as I said, a lot of the enthusiasm or talk about the Fed maybe not ending QE or not raising rates A lot of it has to do with the weakness in the market. People are saying, well, won't the weakness in the stock market put the Fed on hold? Well, duh, that's exactly what I was saying before the market weakened. I said initially, if the Fed tapers the stimulus, that the markets will go down. And the markets going down will mean the Fed has to come back and stimulate to get them back up. Because the goal of quantitative easing was to inflate the stock market and the real estate market. And this is not something that I'm having to speculate on. You know, I was on uh, Fox Business with David Asman and Liz, Liz Clayman, and I talked about the fact that the Fed was going to do more QE to get the stock market up. And David Asman, you know, interrupted me and said, but Peter, you know, it's not up to the Fed. The Fed is not supposed to be there to, to make the stock market go up. And I think David was missing my point. I wasn't trying to say that I believe the Fed should do QE to prop up the stock market. I don't think they should do that, but that's what they're going to do because they said that that's what they were doing. They were wrong. I disagreed with the Fed. When the Fed said we're going to launch QE to prop up the stock market, I said that was a mistake that the Fed should not be trying to blow bubbles in assets. But that was their plan. Their plan was to create a recovery based on the wealth effect that was a byproduct of asset bubbles. And that's what they did. And, you know, recently they've been sucking the air out of the bubbles. And now they're surprised that the bubbles are deflating. And the fact that, no, well, they're going to reverse and start to blow the air back in. Of course, it's a mistake. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with anything that Fed is going to do. I just think I know what they're going to do. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to blow the air back into the bubble. They need stock market going up. So if the stock market goes down, what are they going to do? And again, it's not just stocks. It's real estate that's going down. But all of the the people who were saying, oh, it's a foregone conclusion. Interest rates are going up. The Fed is going to end QE. They're now starting to suggest otherwise. You know, I was reading this article from uh, MSN Money. And here's one of these quotes that this is from a strategist from um, Deutsche Bank on Thursday. This is what this guy is saying from Deutsche Bank. And this is, you know, one of the big banks. Quote, one wonders what possibilities you'd get that the Fed actually does QE again before it raises rates. I'm sure if you have suggested this a month ago, if you would have suggested this a month ago, many would have thought that there was a better chance of Elvis being found living a relaxing retirement on the moon. Now, of course, what was I saying a month ago, a a year ago? (laughs) I was saying that exact same thing. I have said that there will be, not that there's a possibility, but it is a certainty 
that the Federal Reserve will do another round of QE before it raises rates. Now, I was saying that as a certainty, and now people are starting to finally look at it as even a possibility when before they thought it was an impossibility, right? And here is what Bullard himself, James Bullard of the Fed, said on Thursday. These are his words. I'm going to read them exactly, right? The Federal Reserve should consider extending its bond buying program beyond October due to the market sell-off to see how the U.S. economy outlook evolves. There he said it. Extend the bond buying program. That means not bring it to an end as is currently planned. If they do that, that means they would call off the taper before it gets to zero. That is exactly what I said they were going to do. And you know what? If they pause the taper... The next thing they're going to do is reverse the process. They're going to start adding QE back. And eventually they'll be back up at the $85 billion that they started from and eventually even beyond. Here is more of what uh, Bullard said. The Fed cannot abide the recent drop in inflation expectations seen in the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Remember I told you that the Fed was going to come up with an excuse as to why they would have to halt the taper? Well, now the excuse is that inflation expectations are too low. That's an excuse. Here, more quote from Bullard. We have to make sure inflation and inflation expectations remain near our target. And for that reason, a reasonable response of the Fed in this situation, we could go on a pause on the taper at this juncture and wait until we see how the data shakes out in December. This is what he's saying on Bloomberg. Let's pause the taper. Right. What did I say they were going to do with the taper? They were going to pause it. And again, it's not because of low inflation expectations. That's just their excuse. The real reason they're pausing is because asset prices are falling and the economy is headed back into recession. That's it. In fact, the reason that Yellen came out on Wednesday with her exposed statements about her confidence in the U.S. economy is because so much bad data had come out earlier in the week that investors were losing confidence. And so the Fed had to come in and, and talk the markets up. I was also watching on Bloomberg, and they were interviewing a guy who apparently over the past week or so had been talking about the possibility of QE not ending. And this was like, you know, news to Bloomberg. They hadn't heard anybody say that. I think they're saying, hey, you're like the only guy saying this because, of course, Bloomberg doesn't know what I've been saying for the past year because they haven't had me on in six so maybe if the Bloomberg reporters tuned into CNBC or Fox Business once in a while and saw me, uh, they would know that I've been saying this for a long time. This is not a new thought that this guy has, but maybe it's something new that's being expressed on Bloomberg based on the way they screen the people who are allowed on their network. Uh, but this guy is going to be talking about you know, the Fed not ending QE next month. And listen to what the Bloomberg uh, reporter, how she says it. She says, maybe QE didn't have to end. I don't know. If QE doesn't end, it seems to suggest we're in much worse shape than any of us thought we were. Yeah, exactly. We are in worse shape than we thought we were. That's why the Fed pretended that it could end QE, because it wanted to pretend that it had enough confidence in the U.S. economy to end it. After all, if the Fed was going to take away QE, it must no longer think we need it. See, I think the Fed knew we needed it all along, but just couldn't admit that.
They wanted to pretend that the recovery they created was genuine. And in order to pretend that, they had to pretend they could take away the QE. But then I said they also are going to have to come up with an excuse, a reason not to take it away. So they can act as if they were going to take it away all along because they did have confidence in the economy. And then something that they didn't forecast happened, something out of the blue. And now they have to bring it back. And then they can pretend that when this new thing that they didn't anticipate, when this new thing goes away, well, then they'll end QE just at a later date. They have to keep pretending they can end it at a later date because they can never end it on any date. Right? They can't end it without creating a recession. They can't end it without producing another financial crisis, which means they're not going to end it. I mean, not on their own terms. When That doesn't mean it's never going to end. It will end when a currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis forces it to an end. But before that happens, the Fed is going to come up with one excuse after another, which is what I said since they launched QE1. And here we are, you know, nearing the supposed end of QE3. And so many people don't understand that there's going to be another one. But, you know, I wonder when anybody in the media is going to give me credit for knowing this all along, not just all of a sudden. You see, there are people now that are talking about uh, maybe QE4 or maybe the Fed is going to pause. But these are the people who, as late as a month ago, said there was no chance that that was going to happen. So why not go to somebody who was consistent? It's not like, you know, this is a surprise to me. And people are acting like, you know, who knew they ending QE? And what do you know, for some unrelated reason to that, the markets are weakening. And so now we need QE again. No, it's not unrelated. It is specifically because or precisely because the Fed tapered the QE that the air is coming out of the bubble. That's the reason. And, and so now they have to come up with an excuse why they've got to do it again. In fact, if you look at the economic data from the week, the, the weakest day for data was on Wednesday when we had another trifecta of bad economic news. And that's the day that, you know, they had to release the Janet Yellen. I still have confidence in the, in the recovery comment because so much data would have been casting doubt on the recovery. We got PPI that came out. Now, this, from the Fed's perspective, I guess is bad news or the market. They were looking for producer prices to rise by a tenth of a percent. Instead, they fell by a tenth of a percent. It was the first time consumer prices fell, uh, I think, all year. Year-over-year change, uh, 1.6%. You know, versus the prior month, it was 1.8%. So slipping closer to the deflationary danger zone, the retail sales number, that was a big mess. Instead of um, minus 0.1%, which was the consensus, we got minus 0.3. And X-Autos, it was supposed to be plus 0.5. We got minus 0.1. So this was a big drop in retail sales. We also got the Empire State Manufacturing Index. This one was a real disaster. Last month, uh, we had 27.5. The consensus for this month, was 20 and a half. We got six, or 6.17. I mean, that is a huge drop from the, the prior month in that particular economic data point. 
and the Atlanta Fed Business Inflation Expectations Index, right? This is the one that Bullard is worried about, inflation's expectation. Last month, it was 2.1, which I guess is above the 2% level, so I guess that's good. But this month, it dropped to 1.9. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. People are only expecting 1.9% inflation. This is a disaster. This is going down. One of the lone, or few rather, bright spots of the weekly economic releases was on Thursday when we got the new claims for unemployment benefits. And they were expected to rise slightly from last week's 287,000. Instead, they dropped by 23,000 to just 264,000. Now, this is the fewest number of first-time unemployment claims in about 15 years. I think since the year 2000. June of 2000 was the last time we had a number this low. Now, at first blush, you would think, well, this is great. We must have such a strong economy when you have so few people being fired. But that can't be the explanation because we know we don't have a strong economy. We don't have a healthy labor market. So what's going on here? And after I thought about it for a little while, this is my explanation. You can't fire people that you haven't hired. You know, you normally you have a lot of attrition in the hiring process. You know, you throw mud against the wall and you see what sticks. So a lot of times employers hire people hoping that they're going to work out, but they don't. And then they let them go. And maybe they hire a few people uh, and some of them don't work out, but you keep the ones that do. And you constantly try new workers until you find the ones uh, that work out. But given the fact that we've hired so few people, it makes sense that we're not firing as many. And so I think that's really what's going on with these low numbers. It's because companies aren't hiring that they're not firing. And that's not necessarily good news. It shows that we have a far less dynamic workforce and not as many people are given a chance. And of course, sometimes people have to work for a few employers before they get it right. I mean, you don't really know where your skills are going to be, be most valuable or where you're going to fit in. And so you might have to get hired a few times before you land in the right spot. But that is not going on. Now, the other factor that I think is a reason why we're not having as many people laid off is because, again, employers are still holding on to hope for this second half recovery. They still think we have this vibrant recovery because they believe the hype. They believe what they read and what they hear. Uh, and so they are holding on to workers that they might be laying off if they were less optimistic. Now, what I believe is going to happen is as the second half continues to unfold much weaker than what everybody is expecting, I think that early next year, you're going to see a renewed bout of layoffs as basically employers hold, give up hope and start to accept reality. And that reality is that the economy is not nearly as strong as they were hoping for, and they don't need all the workers that they've been holding on to. Now, one final piece of economic data that came out at the end of the week that people are talking about as good news was the housing starts numbers because they were expecting, uh, I think, 1.01 million new units and we got 1.017, right? So we got a beat. 
And that was reported as good news. Look, we're more home construction, big more housing starts. But again, all you've got to do is look beneath the surface. And you don't have to look deep. It's just very superficial. You'd, you'd find that the entire beat is based on multifamily. Single families missed. And more importantly, look at the level of permits. Right? They were looking for 1.027 million permits. They got 1.018. So permits missed. And of course, if permits are not growing, then future housing starts will not grow because you can't start a house unless you've got the permit first. So the permits are a forward-looking indicator. Uh, the starts are more backward-looking. So it really is bad news. And I also believe that they're starting way too many multifamilies. And I think we're going to have a glut on the multifamily front. And, and so... This ultimately is going to turn down too. But the big story is the weakness in the single family homes market. And remember, the market is weak despite the fact that the Fed is still doing QE and that interest rates are still at zero. And mortgage rates, thanks to renewed weakness in the treasury market, are back at record lows. So if the housing market is so weak, when it's got all of these supports propping it up, imagine what would happen to the housing market if the Fed removed the supports and actually started raising interest rates and became a burden on the housing market. Well, I don't think we're going to have to imagine it because it's not going to happen because the end of QE and higher interest rates would you know, deal a death blow to the housing market. That's exactly why the Fed's not going to do it. Although I still think even if the Fed renews QE, and, and doesn't raise rates and launches QE4, I think we're still going to see a weakness in the housing market. I think housing prices will fall despite the Fed's efforts to prop them up. But imagine how much further they would fall if the Fed didn't try to prop them up and actually did uh, what they're threatening to do, which is to raise rates and start selling mortgages. Then it would be a bloodbath, which is why, again, they won't do it. But I think the weakest economic news that we got all week was not official economic data, but corporate news coming from Walmart, the nation's largest retailer. They came out, I think it was on Wednesday, and dourly revised their sales forecast for the fourth quarter. And they were expecting net sales to grow by 3 to 5%. That was the original estimate by Walmart for sales growth. Instead, they're saying sales are only going to grow 2 to 3% on the year, right? And obviously, this is not just for the second half. It's for the entire year. But it means that the second half of the year is going to be much weaker than what Walmart had thought. Now, this is a 40% reduction in their sales growth for the year. And remember, this is top-line numbers. So it doesn't take out the effect of rising prices. So my guess would be if you netted out the price increases that Walmart would actually have declining sales because I'm sure the prices of Walmart products are increasing or the quantity, right? Companies are reducing the amount of stuff they put in their, in their products, forcing consumers to buy more units right, in order to have the same amount of stuff. Yet despite that, Sales are going to grow 2 to 3%. And who knows, it might actually be below the lower end of that range. But think about this. Walmart is um, the biggest retailer. 
Consumer spending is 70% of GDP. Everybody is looking for this big growth for the fourth, third and fourth quarter, the second half, yet the biggest retailer of them all is slashing their estimates. In fact, everybody's been looking for a bright Christmas or you know a jolly Christmas, and Walmart here is the Grinch stealing Christmas, basically saying, we're worried about our Christmas sales, because obviously Christmas sales are a big part of fourth quarter earnings, and despite that, Walmart is getting very downbeat. And Goldman Sachs, by the way, came out during the week and downwardly revised their rather rosy estimates for the fourth quarter. They were at for I mean, for the third quarter, Goldman was at three and a half percent expected GDP growth. They ratcheted it down to three point two and they reduced their fourth quarter guidance from three and a quarter to three. I believe this is going to be the first of many downward revisions, not only for Goldman Sachs, but for the rest of Wall Street. In fact, this week is already uh, off to a very, very weak earnings start. Take a look at IBM stock. IBM coming out today, basically lowering their guidance, uh, coming out with earnings way below expectations. IBM stock is down sharply uh, early in pre-market on Monday. It's trading at a three-year low, three-year low for shares of IBM. And IBM, over the past couple of years, has been the poster child for stock buybacks. Loading up on debt, uh, they've got more debt now in IBM than they had at the, at, you know prior to the financial crisis. So they're more levered up than ever. And now their stock is at a three-year low, meaning all the stock that they borrowed money to buy is now worth less than they paid for it. And the IBM chart, if you take a look at it, it looks awful. Um, it's you know if you look at where it's breaking down, I just said it's at a, it's at a three-year low, but there's a lot of room uh, for this stock to fall. If you look at where it ran from, right, it was down at the 2008 low. It was at 70 bucks. It got as high as it was over 210. Now we're breaking below 170. So we've got a ways to go down on IBM, and this really shows you the danger of the grow your earnings per share through debt. And of course, now that the Fed is theoretically going to be ending quantitative easing and raising rates, it's going to make it harder and harder for companies that got levered up to buy back their stock to survive. And of course, you know, not meaning that IBM is going to go out of business, but there's going to be a big day of reckoning from all these levered up companies. And if anyone thinks this is not going to spill over into the real economy, think, oh, it's just a problem for uh, the corporations. No, when you have these loaded companies loaded up with debt, it is going to have a drain on the economy. And it already has drained the economy because the money that IBM spent overpaying for its own stock was money it couldn't use to modernize its plant and equipment uh, and prepare for future earnings growth. Even on a smaller note, also early uh, on Monday morning, we got some news out from Steve Madden's company. And again, you know, stock is breaking down. This is a shoe company, and the stock has been on a pretty big run since the 2009 lows. The stock went from $4 a share to about almost about $39 a share earlier this year. The stock's going to open up around $28, uh, down a few bucks on the day on weaker earnings. But we've broken the chart pattern, and there's, again, a lot of downside risk. But what's going on, right? If the consumers are pulling back, 
And they're not buying as many shoes because they're out of cash. And again, if this is going to be a consumer-driven recovery, why are the retailers reporting these bad numbers? Why are these stocks that have been running up right now running out of steam? You know, all these guys, and there's not that many, rather, at the Fed. You got guys like Richard Fisher. These guys are saying, we don't need QE. Right? They actually talk about how QE is bad. Um, Fisher calls it uh, uh, Ritalin. You know, I like my calling it monetary heroin, heroin better than calling it Ritalin. But these guys are saying, hey, you know, we don't need the QE. Let's take it away. Well, they're wrong. I mean, we don't need it in that it's hurting the economy. But if you take it away, there'll be a recession. You got guys like Fisher who are going to give the hawks a bad name and embolden the doves because you can't take QE away without collapsing the economy. The the sheer volume of the malinvestments that have happened over the last five or six years, we've never had monetary policy this loose for this long. So we've met, never made more economic mistakes than we've made this time around. And so this is going to unravel very badly. And of course, as the economy starts to go through withdrawal and convulsions, I think the hawks are going to look bad because they've been saying we can take away QE and everything's going to be fine. What they should be saying is we're going to take away QE and we're going to see what a disaster it is because we'll see all the problems that QE created. So we got to get rid of it, not because it's going to be a smooth transition. It's going to be horrible. But the longer we rate, the more horrific it's going to be. But nobody wants to say that. So the minute they start to take it away and the patient starts to react, they're all going to be clamoring for more and more quantitative easing. So as we get more and more of these corporate earnings and the numbers are disappointing, it's not just an event for the stock market. This is a reflection of what's really going on in the U.S. economy. And what's going on is not good. Despite everybody's wishful thinking on how great everything is, it's not great. And again, all of these rosy forecasts are based on the universally held belief that we can exit from QE and it's no problem, that we can take away all the stimulus and everything's going to be fine. Well, we're going to take it away and we're going to see just how unfine, how horrible everything is. But unfortunately, they're not going to come to the right conclusion. That being that QE was a mistake. And we shouldn't have done it. And now we're going to have to deal with the pain of undoing it. No, they're going to come to the conclusion that they just need to do more QE, that they had the right idea. They just didn't do it big enough. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, on Friday, Janet Yellen was given a speech, but she actually ventured into really uncharted waters for a Fed chairman, it seemed more of a political speech than a speech that you would get from a Fed chairman. Of course, the most ironic aspect of it is here you have the Federal Reserve chairman really speaking against the growing uh, income inequality that she perceives as such a danger, yet oblivious to the fact that it is the policy of the very institution that she chairs that is the most responsible for the widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. So here she is causing the very problem that she's lamenting. She wants politicians potentially to solve it, but she's the one that's responsible. And as long as the Fed is blowing bubbles, as long as the Fed is diverting resources from Main Street to Wall Street, we're never going to have the kind of economic growth that's going to shrink in the gap. Instead, we're going to keep impoverishing 
uh, the masses to, to enrich a few. You know, the Fed was waiting for trickle-down monetary policy to work. It didn't work. There's nothing to trickle down. In fact, the Fed is siphoning all the water out of the real economy and raining the profits down on a few select individuals uh, that comprise, you know, the financial community and those that own the assets, but everybody else gets the shaft. Have a listen to a little bit of what Janet Yellen had to say on Friday. The extent of and continuing increase in inequality in the United States greatly concern me. The past several decades have seen the most sustained rise in inequality since the 19th century, after more than 40 years of narrowing inequality following the Great Depression. By some estimates, income and wealth inequality are near their highest levels in the past 100 years, much higher than the average during that time span, and probably higher than for much of American history before them. It is no secret that the past few decades of widening inequality can be summed up as significant income and wealth gains for those at the very top and stagnant living standards for the majority. Well, why does the Fed chairman think that's the case? Unfortunately, right, the Federal Reserve is the primary driving force for that trend. It's Fed policy. It is the policy that Janet Yellen supports that is widening the divide between the rich and everybody else. It's the Fed's belief in trickle-down monetary policy, right? The Republicans got uh, blamed for believing in what the Democrats call trickle-down economics. Well, this is trickle-down monetary policy, which is the real voodoo economics, right? Trickle-down monetary policy is that if you create asset bubbles, if you if you rain money on Wall Street, the prosperity will trickle down to everybody else. Now, the fact that it hasn't trickled down, it's not it's not because of the market. It's the Federal Reserve believing in such a ridiculous monetary theory. They're the ones that tried it and it's failed. And that's why you're getting this widening divide because the prosperity isn't trickling down. In fact, the money that the Federal Reserve is raining on the rich through quantitative easing is being drained from the rest of the economy. The Fed is siphoning resources from productive use to speculation. The people are getting rich. The, the very people that Janet Yellen uh, is, you know, is claiming are getting too rich are, are, are feeding at a trough that was fed by the Federal Reserve. And the, the, it's, it's being filled by emptying a pool that would have nurtured the the the, uh, the 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 overall economy, but she can't see the distinction there. She can't connect these dots to the Fed's monetary policy and the growing income inequality. I'm not sure what Janet Yellen feels is to blame, but she probably thinks it's taxes being too low and there not being enough government, even though there is taxes are much higher. And government is much bigger than it was in the 19th century when income inequality was less. You know, back then, she talks about the 19th century, we had no income taxes, no Social Security taxes, no minimum wage law, uh, no government programs. It was a complete free market, yet you had less inequality than we have now. 
So it can't be, the reason can't be a lack of government programs because we have all these government programs. If anything, the government programs are part of the problem, which they are. These government programs undermine business investment in capital formation and therefore limit worker productivity, limit the gains in living standards that would flow from an otherwise unfettered free market. The government is gumming up the works, but the single biggest contributor to this growing divide and why it's such a big issue now. I mean, does Janet Yellen think that this is pure coincidence that the Fed has been doing this unconventional monetary policy for these past few years? And that just now you're hearing all of the drum beats about income inequality and class warfare. Does the Fed not understand the connection between its policy and what is now happening? Why didn't we have that? Why weren't all these people railing about income inequality, you know, 10 years ago? Right. Why now? What's different? Well, the difference is zero percent interest rates and quantitative easing. That is the single biggest difference, and that is the single best explanation of the widened divide. Yet the irony of it is, there's Janet Yellen, the head of the institution that is responsible for creating this widening disparity, and now she's railing against it. This is a terrible problem, and we've got to do something about it. Yeah, reverse your policy. Stop doing what you're doing, right? Rate, stop doing the quantitative easing. Stop blowing bubbles. Stop distorting the economy. Stop punishing savers. Stop undermining capital investment. Stop diverting credit from Main Street to Wall Street. But no, she wouldn't think of any of that. I guess she just wants new government programs to counteract the damage done by her monetary policy. In the same speech, Yellen is also talking about the, the inequality in education, right? She's, she's saying that we need to have more equality. And she's upset that kids that live in wealthier neighborhoods, because education is financed predominantly locally through property taxes, that if you're living in a wealthier community where property values are higher and therefore property tax revenues more plentiful, that if you're living in a wealthier environment, well, then you're going to be going to schools that are better because those schools have more resources to hire better teachers or you know just have better facilities, have better equipment. And if you're growing up in a poor neighborhood where property values are low, that the local school board won't have as much money and therefore will have an inferior uh, educational system. And she says this is wrong and that the federal government should be more involved in leveling the playing field than maybe the federal government should be financing schools. It should not be left to a local governments where they're constrained by uh, you know, local wealth, that it should be the government so that all the schools get the same money no matter where they are. And first of all, you might wonder, why is you know, Janet Yellen even talking about this stuff because other Fed chairmen would have just said, look, this is a political decision. I'm not going to weigh in on it. But Janet Yellen is very political and very liberal and very much believes in big government. And so she she can't resist putting in her two cents, which is why I know that when the economy turns down, she is going to print all the money that she needs, that she thinks the economy needs, because she's going to want to help because she cares and she cares enough to print and she's going to be out there, you know, making Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan blush uh, with how much money she creates. And this is a little bit of a window into her psyche for those of people who are now somehow thinking that she's found her inner hawk. Remember, that is all BS. 
There is no tightening coming. Uh, it's going to be easy, Janet. Uh, you know, she is going to be the, the biggest money printer at the Fed. But getting back to this whole idea that she's kind of espousing about education, as if the reason that inner city schools, right, are, are, are not providing good education is because they, they lack the resources, they lack the funds. That is nonsense. You know, she talks about how in other countries, uh, the national government spends a lot more on education percentage-wise than in the United States, which is true, where we have it's mostly local governments. But if you still look at the amount spent, I bet if you go to any inner city school system, whether it's in New York City, uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Chicago, Atlanta, any of these places, right, I bet the spending per capita is much greater than in other countries around the world. Yet, despite all the money that we lavish on our schools in the inner cities, they, the performance is bad. And it's not about money. More federal money down that educational rat hole isn't going to make a difference. Oh, the other thing is, you know, is the moral hazard. Because if you basically decide to federalize all the educational spending, and if you say, look, you know, we're gonna, the federal government is going to give money to all the school districts, and that the local school districts will no longer have, you know, to finance their public schools. As expensive as these public schools are now, it's going to go off the charts because obviously, A, they're going to want to lower their property taxes because they're not going to need the property tax revenue to fund the schools because they're just simply going to count on revenue from the federal government. So rather than individual property owners paying their high property taxes, they'll just be paying higher income taxes so that the federal government can spend money instead of the local government because the federal government cannot have a property tax. So if the federal government wants to take money from individuals to, to finance uh, education, they've got to do it from the income tax. Uh, although I suppose they could initiate a, a value-added tax or something like that, a national sales tax. But if that were the case... See, right now there's some objection to higher spending. I mean, not much, but, you know, homeowners, there's a limit. Homeowners don't want their property taxes skyrocketing. So they have some control, some downward pressure on escalating, you know, educational expenditures because people in the community know if they spend more, it's going to cost them more. But if you diffuse that, Right. If you if you federalize it, then you lose the local opposition to increased education spending because the funding is happening nationally. So as out of control as federal spending or no, as out of control as spending is, as local spending is on education, it would be even more out of control if we federalize the whole process. And the one thing I know for sure is we wouldn't have better results. More money is not going to buy us a better educated uh, population. It's just going to waste more money. The only thing that really will result in better education, if Janet Yellen was really concerned about the inequality in education, she would be for vouchers. She would be for privatization. She would be for free market solutions. I mean, after all, one of the reasons that schools in wealthier neighborhoods have to be better is because they compete with private schools. If, if you're in an affluent community, 
the parents have the ability to not only pay the property taxes to support the local schools, but if those local schools stink, they can also spend the money sending their kids to a private school. So that competition is there. But in inner cities where you have a lot of poverty, where the parents don't have the choice, where it's public schools or nothing, well, then the public schools don't have to be as good. So what Janet Yellen should really be arguing for is some kind of a voucher system so that poor people have the same choice that more affluent people do of removing their kids from the public school system so the public schools are forced to deliver better education to their students. And so the parents have the opportunity of enrolling their kids in schools that will deliver better education. But no, all Janet Yellen thinks about is money because Janet Yellen thinks money solves problems. The more money, the more problems you solve. And that is very dangerous coming from the person in charge of printing all that money because she thinks that prosperity can emanate from her printing press, that the more money she prints, the more prosperity she's going to rain down on everybody else. And she is just waiting, waiting for the opportunity to do her magic. And when the economy rolls over, as the recession is returning and everybody is putting pressure on the government, on the Fed, do something, do something, Janet Yellen is going to rise to the occasion. That's it for today's podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you are sharing it with your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter, and help me spread the word about the Peter Schiff Show in podcast format so we get more people listening on a weekly basis to two hours of economic sanity in what is really an insane world.